So I wasn't going to do this, but I got this story. I love last-second stories. So <clears throat> there's somebody here tonight who really didn't expect to be here. Um, was was any, anybody, I, I know this is Arcadia, we're not into football or sports or anything, but did, did anybody see or hear about the playoff game on Sunday between Minnesota and New Orleans? And, and what happened? You skipped church to be able to watch it. Okay, well, so did this guy. And, and he's from Minnesota, and he's a diehard Vikings fan. And here you go. Um, the Vikings were losing with 30 seconds left, and they were, the Vikings were 61 yards away from touchdown. And he prayed with 30 seconds left. He said, God, if somehow you allow the Vikings to win this game, I'll go to the Amos study on Wednesday night. <laughs> and Case Keener went back and threw that pass, and that weird thing happened with the defensive back, and the next thing you know, the Vikings score a touchdown, they win the game, and he's like, Oh, man, I got to go to the Mamus study on Wednesday night. So he probably won't be here the next three weeks, but he's here tonight. So thank you, Ron. I appreciate that. So. God is good, isn't he? Or he's just prolonging your agony, maybe. Okay. Um, the reason I got the mic going is not because I think I necessarily need amplification. In fact, you could probably turn me down a little bit or not. Um, Daniel's in charge, believe it or not. Um, but uh, because we're, we are podcasting this, so uh, at some point, the podcast will be up on our website. Uh, and that's so that um, if you're traveling and have to miss one, or if you want to go to the Titus study instead, uh, you can do that. So um, would you turn in your Bibles to Amos chapter 1? And obviously, if, you know, if you've done any of these with me, you know that tonight's going to be a lot of background and introduction uh, material, but we are going to get through the first two chapters anyway of Amos. And yes, I have the pointer, which means there is going to be a map tonight. I am so excited. I love maps. Okay. By the way, I'm going to have a map Sunday too. So if you like maps, come back Sunday for Ephesians. All right. So chapter one, verse one of Amos. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, that would be Jeroboam II, not Jeroboam I. That's Jeroboam II, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two, two years before the earthquake. What earthquake are they talking about? Nobody knows. They have earthquakes in that region all the time, so nobody really knows historically. But there are other historical cues um, in that verse that help us to understand pretty certainly what the date of, of this uh, prophet, this prophet's preaching his oracles are, which we'll get to in a minute. So Amos is a shepherd and he is a fig dresser. What, what is a fig dresser? Well, we'll see. Um, he's a shepherd and fig dresser and really zone in on this. If you don't zone in on anything else, that's fine, but really zone in on this. He's a shepherd and fig dresser, so he's not a professional prophet. He's not like Jeremiah or Isaiah. And he's from Judah, the southern kingdom. And he's sent by God to proclaim warnings, judgment, and stern instruction to Israel, the northern kingdom. So just kind of think about that. Dwell upon that. You got, you got somebody from New Mexico 
coming into Arizona going, you guys are all screwed up. <laughs> you don't know what you're doing. And we're like, why don't you just head back to the Lobo State, pal? Okay? So what, one of the things we have to remember is that the kingdom of Israel was split in the year 922 B.C. By the way, by Je Jeroboam I was one of the, the first guys. I'm not ready for that one yet. <laughs> uh, I'll get there. But the kingdom was split in 922 amidst great antipathy. And you ended up with t ten tribes to the north and two tribes, Ben and Judah, to the south. And they retained Jerusalem as their capital. The tribe to the north had Samaria, the city of Samaria, as their capital. This preaching of Amos is around the year 752 to 750. So this is 170-odd years after the, the kingdoms had split. And Israel and Judah, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, they really didn't get along. And so just think about the antipathy of a guy from the southern kingdom coming into the northern kingdom to say, hey, you guys have this all wrong, okay? So this type of message is always unwelcome. Anytime, you know, you're faced with correction from somebody, especially somebody you don't really know, you're not that excited about that. But it's even more so from this hick coming from the southern kingdom. Uh, and, and so this, this is something that has to be in our minds virtually every second, every moment of this series, that it's an outsider delivering this message. And not only is he an outsider, but he's a shepherd and a fig dresser. So what's that about? Well, the shepherd, he, he, he's a sheep herder. So that's, first of all, kind of problematic because it's the lowest rung on the social status ladder. Um, but it's partly symbolic as well. Sheep are notoriously dumb and stubborn, right? You know that about sheep, right? They're notoriously dumb and stubborn, always leaning into their own counsel, which often leads to their own destruction. And one of the biggest and most challenging jobs of any shepherd is to protect the, the sheep from their own stupidity and stubbornness. That's what they have to do. The sheep always want to go their own way. They always want to do what they think is right. And the shepherd has to sometimes, for their own good, uh, be quite the harsh disciplinarian. Well, God's people often behave like sheep. Can I get an amen from God's people? That, that includes your pastors, too, by the way. Uh, and a fig dresser. What's a fig dresser? Well, uh, once a year, just before the fruit is harvested... Uh, the, the owners of the fig trees would go out and, and hire these dressers. So it's, it was seasonal employment. They would go out to hire these fig dressers. And what the dresser would do is they would come and each fig, they would make a tiny slit in the fig to drain out the excess water from the fig. And then three to four days later, later the figs would be picked. They would be harvested. So I want you to think about that job. Okay? So he leaves the nasty, dirty, biting, stubborn, stupid sheep to go and put a little slit in thousands and thousands and thousands of figs just to drain off a drop or two of excess water from the figs so they can be properly harvested. And think about how tedious that job must be. And, and for one person, it might take them a whole day to do just one tree, one fig tree, because these fig trees are big and lush and full, and there's thousands of figs on there. So it would take a long, long uh, time to be able to dress one tree, okay? 
Um, it's slow and tedious work that requires, of all things, endurance, patience, perseverance, and steadfastness. And again, those are things that are needed for the work of ministry. You need endurance and perseverance and patience and steadfastness when trying to lead God's uh, people to God's grace and God's wisdom. So Amos lived in the 8th century B.C. His prophetic ministry was very short. The evidence shows it was at most a year and a half from 752 to 750 or so. Now that slide. So here's some history for us. In 930, Solomon re- Solomon's reign ends. This is Now, Israel is a united kingdom at this point. He's the third king uh, uh, in the history, David's son, and he reigned over the most prosperous times in the history of Israel to that point. His reign ends in 930. 922, Solomon's sons, um, they've been sideways with each other for uh, several years already, and they decide, well, here's the answer. We're going to split the kingdom. Civil war, split the kingdom. Ten tribes to the north, two tribes to the south. And then in 722, the northern kingdom gets sacked by Assyria, and the Assyrians were not nice people, very, very difficult uh, people. Then in, that should be 605, not 602, but in 605, 597, and 587, I have no idea what Stephanie was drinking when she typed that in, but in 605, 597, and 587, into 586, the southern kingdom, Judah, gets sacked by Babylon. So, um, and 520-ish, that's right, around 520, the exiles begin their return from the Babylonian exile back into Jerusalem to rebuild the, the city of Jerusalem, the wall, and eventually the temple. So um, Amos is doing his ministry uh, essentially 30 years before the northern kingdom gets sacked by Assyria. He's there to warn them that this, this judgment is, is imminent, that it's uh, essentially going to come. Amos never describes himself as a professional prophet. He never puts himself off like that. We'll look more closely at that. In chapter 7, when he talks a little bit about that, and we get more of a historical context uh, for the book. But even though he's not a professional prophet, scholars claim his Hebrew poetry is among the best ever written. Uh, The poetry in this book is beautiful, it's poignant, it's clever, and it's cutting. It cuts right to the heart. Uh, And his prophecy is of great value to us because it gives us an understanding of the internal condition of Israel, the northern kingdom, just a few decades before their judgment, which their judgment came at God's behest and was through the tool of the Assyrians who came in in 722. And here was the condition of Israel at this time that Amos was teaching. Their economy was incredibly strong and their morality was a disaster. Does that maybe register with anybody? (laughs) If you think about it, okay, they were papering over their, their poor morality with this idea that, well, everything's fine because the economy is good and everybody's making money. And the Dow's about to hit 26, oh, it hit 26,000 today, didn't it? Okay, I don't know what the Dow was in Israel. It was called something else. I don't know what it is. Um, but they thought that they must be in good, God's good graces because the economy was good. So it was as, as good or better than it had been since... Um, Solomon's day, and so they're thinking they were, they were Teflon. They, nobody could touch them, you know? 
Uh, yet at that very moment, they were being sized up for judgment and discipline. So they had a false sense of security. They had a facade, but they had no depth. Okay, Facade, no depth. They were whitewashed tombs. They were, they were practicing their religion, but they didn't mean it. Tremendous amount of hypocrisy. So facade, no depth. A number of years ago, I worked with a worship leader, <clears throat> um, very talented uh, worship leader, uh, and, and he was married, and his wife was going to graduate school, and she was graduating. She was getting her master's degree. And so he decides, I need to make a party for her. So he invites a bunch of people, and he's going to put this party on in their house, and blah, blah, blah. So he says, i got to get a cake. So he runs down to Costco, and he runs into the Costco, and he's, he's a little bit sort of a just-in-time guy and just sort of does things off the seat of his pants. So he runs in last second, very panicked about getting a cake. And she's graduating from GCU, so... He needs something in GCU color, so purple and gold, I guess, or whatever. And he saw a cake on display in Costco that had the GCU colors. And, and so he said, that's perfect. And he just grabs it, and he runs up to the front to pay for it. He gets up to the front. He's trying to pay for the cake. They can't find any sort of uh, inventory number, SKU number, nothing to figure out. And, and finally, they just said, I just, it's $29.99. Just charge him $29.99. So he runs out with the cake. And they get home. It's a couple hours before the party. His father-in-law says, we need to put the cake in the freezer so that it'll keep. So they put it in their freezer. And then two hours later, the party's going on, and it come time for the cake. So they bring the cake out. And they br they'd actually brought it out and was sitting on the counter for about a half an hour so that it might thaw out a little bit. So they go in to cut the cake. <laughs> They take a regular old knife, and they start cutting, and they, they get through the icing, and then the knife just stops. It just stops cold, okay? So the worship leader and his father-in-law conclude that the cake got frozen somehow. So they need a serrated edge knife. So they go and they get a serrated edge knife, and they start to saw as, as hard as they can, and they can't saw through this thing with a serrated edge knife. Okay, I kid you not. They went into the garage and got a saw. And now they don't care anymore. They went into the garage and got a saw for this cake. They were determined to be able to cut this cake somehow. Okay, What was the cake made of? Styrofoam. It was a display cake. <laughs> okay, This is what God's people sometimes do. We, we put on this facade, and inside we're as dead as styrofoam. And this is what Amos is trying to warn us about. This, this is what Amos is trying to warn the Israelites about, but he's also trying to warn us because God's word is timeless. So their problem was that their economic success and preoccupation with materialistic achievement went hand in hand with moral and religious degradation. Further, they had become, the Israelites had become skillful at doing something that we all love to do today. Mix and water down God's call, his gospel, mix it and water it down with the pagan and cultural practices of their day. We do that all the time to our detriment. In other words, they were synchronists. Have you heard the word synchronist before? A synchronist is somebody who mixes something from here with this to come up with something new, and they think it's better than 
either of these other two components, okay? So asynchronous is this. See if you haven't had a conversation like this at some point in your life. Well, I like this about Jesus, and I like that about Jesus, but I don't like this other thing about Jesus. So I'm going to take the stuff that I like about Jesus, and I'm going to mix it in with what I think culture is now getting right, or what I think will make me look cool in the eyes of culture, and I'm going to come up with my own version of faith that's part Jesus and part whatever the cultural mores are. We do this all the time. We do this all the time. Uh, John Ortberg, the, the author and great pastor in California, calls this Sheilaism. Has anybody heard that term before, Sheilaism? You can look it up on the internet. So Sheilaism was developed by a woman named Sheila, yes, about 20 years ago in, in uh, the Bay Area of California. She became famous for her idea of taking... Uh, this from Christianity, and this from Islam, and this from Buddhism, and this from uh, New Age uh, doctrine, and this from Taoism, and kind of coming up with her own thing. And she called it Sheilaism because she's Sheila. Well, who is the God in Sheilaism? So, Sheila, so it can be Frankism, right? So it can be Ronnieism. You know, it, it can be whatever, whatever it is that, that we want. I call it religious elixirism. It just, so in other words, there's no discipline, there's no rebuke, there's no correction, there's no challenges. You become your own personal echo chamber, you know. Well, I'm going to see what I think about this, <laughs> you know. Um, and, and here you go. This is a big part of it, especially in our culture. You do whatever your heart tells you is right. Whatever your heart tells you is right, that's what you do. I keep asking this question. People are annoyed with the question because I keep asking it, but the reason I keep asking it is because I still don't have an answer to it. If you always do what your heart tells you is right, and everybody else is always doing what their heart tells them is right, what do you do when the two hearts collide? Because hearts are going to collide. What do you do then? Whose heart wins? See, nobody has an answer for that. Uh, and this happened just this last week, okay, so I'm in traffic, I'm at a stoplight, I'm behind a car, and the car has a bumper sticker that says, always, no, not that one, but yeah, there's another one that's fairly annoying. Anyway, uh, always follow your heart, bumper sticker that said, always follow your heart. The light turns green, and the lady driving the car was on her phone unaware that the light had turned green. So her heart was telling her that she needed to be on the phone, okay? So at least she's following the law that says you're not supposed to text and drive. She wasn't driving. She was just sitting there with a green light, okay? At that moment, I will confess to you that what my heart wanted to do was slam my car into her car. I think she would have had a problem with that, but I would have said, I'm just doing what your bumper sticker said. My heart told me to slam into your car because you're looking at your stupid phone at a green light. Whose heart wins? You see how this... Okay, here you go. Now, beside the rantings of your semi-crazy pastor, here you go. Every philosopher I have read on the issue of postmodernism, every single one, even philosophers who are advocating for postmodernism will admit and write the same thing. Postmodernism will eventually collapse under the weight of its own contradictions. You get that? You hear that? Postmodernism, the culture we live in today, 
sooner or later is simply going to collapse under the weight of its own contradictions. And we can get frustrated with the way people are, are living in total contradiction. And you can point that out to them, and they're going to keep doing it. You really, in some respects, you don't ever have to point it out, because sooner or later, it's just going to collapse on them. That's just the, what happens. Anyway, as a result, Amos, Amos is telling the Israelites, judgment is coming. You, you reap what you sow. That's what he's saying. And, and he introduces God's words with, if you read through the Bible, you, you, you understand that whenever somebody says, hear this word, woe unto you, or this is what the Lord has shown me, uh, some tough words are coming. Now, look at this graphic. I think we have a slide for this. The verses, there are 146 verses in Amos. One of those verses is introductory in, in nature. We just read it, okay? Seven of those verses are biological or historic, I'm sorry, biographical, not biological, biographical or historical. We'll, we'll see those verses in chapter 7. 133 of the verses are judgment and warning and instruction. And five of the verses are redemption, about redemption and hope. Five. What does that tell us? Some of you are sitting there going, we're in for a long four weeks. That's what it's telling us, you know. Yeah, it's tough. Here you go. Here's what I think it's telling us. If God's justice is to prevail... God's judgment cannot be averted. If God's justice is going to prevail, God's judgment cannot be averted. And what we're going to look at in, verse, in chapters 1 and 2 is what I like to call too close for comfort. The problem, though, of course, is that the people don't buy it. They treat Amos like a scab. Their biggest problem was that their, uh, their expectations of God's blessings were based on false foundations they figured that since the economy was good, God was good with them. Doesn't that sound familiar? It makes me think. And, and we talked about this when we, when we did Isaiah 58 a few weeks ago, but the Israelites were in that time when they wanted the day of the Lord to come. They wanted God to come and judge everybody else. They were calling out for the day of the Lord. They were ready for him to come for the final judgment. And Amos is there to say, that's not going to be a happy day for you. It's going to be a very, very sad day for you. So he's kind of raining on their, on their party. And, and, and Amos says, yeah, your enemies are going to be judged, but so are you. And God, God's problem with Israel at the time is their avarice. They're, they're, in other words, their propensity to accumulate and hoard wealth, which allows in their mind for the ends to justify the means. And their means were awful. Uh, J.A. Motyer, who's an Old Testament scholar, he writes this about Amos. Just because this is ancient doesn't mean that our, in our modern, industrialized, post-biblical world won't come under God's judgment as well. That's why it's relevant to us today. And Amos's remedy for the coming judgment is really quite simple. He says, repent. Turn back to God. Stop the hypocrisy. So we talked about this again a couple weeks ago in, in Isaiah 58. The Greek, the, the Greek New Testament word that we translate as hypocrisy literally means to wear a mask so that you can become someone or something else. And it's actually a, a theater term. You, you're play acting as, as someone else. And, and all the prophets at some point 
or another will talk about that hypocrisy. Um, here are the key theological themes found in Amos. Number one, the sovereignty of God. There's no such thing as a maverick molecule in the universe. Number two, more specifically than the sovereignty of God, God controls the destinies of all nations for his good purpose. God controls the destinies of all nations for his good purpose. He's the God of all. He's the God of judgment. He's the God of justice. And he's the God of salvation and redemption. Number three, being in a covenant relationship with God is a privileged position, but it also comes with great responsibilities. In other words, to whom much is given, much is expected. Uh, number four, penance and indulgences don't work with God. He wants heart change, not religious rites. He wants repentance, not penance. And there's a difference between repentance and penance. Repentance is a turning away from the old life and turning toward God. Penance is sinning, going and paying the fine so that you can go and sin more. In other words, there's no heart change with penance. Repentance is heart change, and that's what he's looking for. And number five is very simply, don't be a hypocrite. So those would be the five major themes in, in Amos. Um, John Oswald, who is also an Old Testament scholar, he writes a pretty good summary of, of Amos. He writes this, God knew Israel, chapter 3, verse 2. He knew Israel out of all the families of the earth and instituted Israel to be a place where righteousness and justice in both private and public spheres would be on display for all mankind. The northern kingdom of Israel had, in effect, rejected that calling and abused their privilege, and so God would punish them all the more severely for their unfaithfulness. And yet, even this terrible judgment did not eclipse all hope. There would still come an heir of David in whom Israel and Judah and indeed all of the world would find blessing. Yes? Uh, number three is being in a covenant relationship with God is a privileged position, but that means it also comes with great responsibilities. Uh, you know, a little bit more on that. I think one of the challenge of, of challenges of uh, the privilege of, of um, redemption, of being saved by grace, is that we forget that it comes with some measure of responsibility and accountability. What does Paul constantly say in his New Testament letters? He says... Live your life in a manner worthy of your calling in the gospel. So you've been given the great gift of the gospel. That's a privilege. But it also comes with this uh, responsibility to respond in gratitude to the great gift that you've been, been given. We, we behave as God's people not to become God's people, but because we are God's people. So what I want to do is uh, read through... Um, Chapter 2, verse 5. So 1, 1 through 2, 5. A little bit of a long reading. Um, but I want you to listen closely and see if you can discern some of the patterns uh, in, in his right. There's really three patterns that you should see emerge um, pretty quickly in the way this is, uh, this is written, the way this has been preached. So the words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, 
two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they have threshed Gilead with threshing, threshing sledges of iron. So I will send fire upon the house of Hazael, and it shall devour the strongholds of Ben-Hadad. I will break the gate bar of Damascus and cut off the inhabitants from the valley of Avon and him who holds the scepter from Beth Aden. And the people of Syria shall go back into Kerr, says the Lord. We'll explain all of that and unpack all of that. Verse 6, thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Gaza and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they carried people Uh, carried into exile a whole people and delivered them up to Edom. So I will send fire upon the wall of Gaza and it shall devour her strongholds. I will cut off the inhabitants from Ashdod and uh, and him who holds the scepter from Ashkelon. I will turn my hand against Ekron and the remnant of the Philistines shall perish, perish, says the Lord. Verse 9, thus says the Lord, for the three transgressions of Tyre and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they were delivered up, because they delivered up a whole people to Edom and did not remember the covenant of brotherhood. What the heck is that? Well, explain that. So I will send fire upon the wall of Tyre and it shall devour her strongholds. Thus says the Lord, for the three transgressions of Edom and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because he pursued his brother with a sword and cast off all pity. And his anger tore perpetually, and he kept his wrath forever. So I will send fire upon Teman, and it shall devour the strongholds of Basra. Thus says the Lord, for the three transgressions of the Ammonites, and for four. You know, we have somebody in our congregation, some of you know him, named Jonathan Ammon. And so I told him he was under judgment in uh, the book of Amos. Anyway, for, the three, for three transgression of the Ammonites and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have ripped open pregnant women in Gilead that they might enlarge their border. So I will kindle a fire on the wall of Rabbah. That, that is um, current day Amman, Jordan, by the way, Rabbah. And it shall devour her strongholds with shouting on the day of battle, with a tempest in the day of the whirlwind. And their king shall go into exile, he and his princes together, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord, chapter 2, for the three transgressions of Moab and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because he burned to lime the bones of the king of Edom. So I will send fire upon Moab, and it shall devour the strongholds of Keriot, and Moab shall die amid uproar, amid shouting and the sound of trumpet, I will cut off the ruler from its midst, midst. And will kill all of its princes with him, says the Lord. Verse 4. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment. What's the irony there? Where is Amos from? He's from Judah. And what's the difference also between Judah and these other nations? The Israelites might be kind of going, oh, wow, this is getting old. A little too close for comfort. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, 
but their lives have led them astray, those after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah, and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. So what are the three patterns you see there? I'm sorry? Uh, literarily, what do you see there? Three and four, so we need to explain that. Why does he say, for the three sins, no for four? For the three transgressions, no for four. And he also says, as you say, he also says, I will not revoke the punishment. They're going to be punished, every one of them. And the third one, what's going to be the tool of the punishment? Fire. Fire in every one of them. Now, interesting, when we get to Israel, there's no mention of fire in chapter 2. But there is for these other seven uh, nations. That's kind of interesting. So let's kind of talk about this. First of all, uh, let's talk a little bit about inspiration. The words of Amos are the words of the Lord. Yet Amos retains his personality during all of his pronouncements, during all of his, his preaching. This is the essence of, of divine inspiration of Scripture. They are God's words while the author retains his or her personality. Uh, this is the miracle of biblical inspiration. This is Paul. This is Isaiah. This is Jeremiah. This is John. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. They're getting their words from God, divine inspiration, but they maintain their personality in the midst of this. In verse 1, Tekoa is an uplands wilderness vig, uh, village in Judah about eight miles south of Bethlehem and about ten miles south of Jerusalem. And the rest of verse 1 gives us the historical context. It's somewhere around the middle of the century, around 752, 750. And God chooses not just a Judean to go to the Israelites to pronounce these oracles, but a lowly shepherd, the lowest person on the scale. So that should communicate to the Israelites that this is all God. He didn't pluck somebody, he didn't pluck a seminary professor out of Jerusalem to go and talk to Israel. He took a shepherd and told him to go and talk to the people of Israel. Yet Israel ignores it. And the oracles start with judgment against pagan nations. So the first nation that gets judged, it's represented by Damascus, but the nation is Syria, not Assyria, but Syria, just to the north of Israel. The second nation is the Philistines, or Philistia. The third nation, represented by Tyre, is Phoenicia. Those are all pagan nations. And, and you have to imagine the Israelite listening to Amos at this point going, Yeah! You sick them, God! You go get them! We can't stand those people anyway. And then he says, eat them. And they're kind of going, hmm, that's interesting. But I can understand that. Who is Edom? Who, who, are the, uh, who, who are they descendants of? Esau, right. Jacob's brother. Okay, yeah. He wasn't very nice to Jacob. They're kind of our cousins, but that's okay. That's okay. It's not us. Yeah, get them. Sick them, God. Okay, and then Ammon and Moab, who are they descendants of? Lot, of Abraham and Lot, they're actually cousins too. So you start with the outsiders, the pagans, now you got some extended family. 
But they're still, yeah. Can't stand those Moabites, those gigabytes, all of those bites. They suck, you know. You need to get rid of them. And then all of a sudden, the seventh nation, Judah. Uh Uh-oh. Well, yeah, they split off from us 170 years ago, 150 years ago, whatever it was. Yeah, okay. But there had to be a few of them at least, a few of them at this point going, hmm, I don't know. This is getting a little too close for comfort. Now he's, now he's going off on Judah. He's talking about his own people. I mean, he came from, from Judah. And then what we're going to read towards the end of our session tonight is there's this long, notice that this, each of the judgments against all these other nations, two or three verses, there's this long introductory judgment to Israel, and then it's followed by chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and part of 9, all of it against Israel. So the introduction to the judgment against Israel is four times longer than any of the judgments against the other nations. Just the introduction against them. By comparison, the other nations get off kind of easy. So Amos's visions, and here's one of the things we need to remember about Amos's visions, they're not future telling as much as they are the ability to see what's true now and what are the consequences of that truth now because of who God is. That's what he's doing. He's taking uh, the condition and the situation of God's people and looking at what God's word says and says, you're headed for disaster. That's the essence of most biblical prophecy. In verse 2, God speaks from Jerusalem, his temple, his home, his central place. But as, as we'll see in chapter 2, verse 5, there's some irony about that. He's speaking from Jerusalem. He's speaking from his temple. What happens in chapter 2, verse 5, though? That gets destroyed. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that God's house? And in verse 2, it says, the Lord roars and utters. Literally, that word utters, not a great translation. Uh, It literally means thunders. He roars and thunders. And that's a call to submission. It's uh, when a lion roars and thunders, their prey tends to submit and cower. And the idea is to go, oh, somebody in authority is here. We need to start listening closely. And he says, you know, from the pastures to the top of Carmel, Mount Carmel. So here, here's what Amos is saying. It's, it's a literary device that says that the height, the depth, and the breadth of God's judgment is thoroughly comprehensive. It's going to encompass everything. There isn't anywhere you can go to hide from the Lord. Okay? And then, and then he starts in on each, each of these nation's oracles. And here's another pattern that you, that, that's there as well. Notice that the crimes of the first six nations are all against humanity. They're crimes against humanity. But with Judah, it's, they're not crimes against humanity, but rather they are crimes against God's law, God's word, God's character. Uh, think about... Romans chapters 1, 2, and 3. This is what Paul is teaching. He's saying just because God has not specifically revealed himself to you doesn't mean that you're not going to be responsible for your sin. Just because God is not specific, he hasn't chosen the Philistines or 
the Phoenicians or the Moabites to be his people doesn't mean that they're not going to be held accountable for their sin. That's essentially the message here. You can't avoid the judgment of God by saying that you're not part of God's family. And that's what Paul says in the early parts of, chapter, uh, of, of Roman, Romans. But then he gets to Judah and he says, you have a higher responsibility. You are God's people. You have the temple. I chose you. Your crimes are against me and my law and my word. So the first judgment is against Damascus. That's in Syria, not Assyria. That's another group of people, but Syria. There's that three transgressions, no four. Poetically, it means because of your total sinfulness. It's a way of saying because of your total sinfulness. Literarily, this is what it means. Three transgressions is enough for you to be judged by God, but he waited for a fourth transgression because he is a patient God. He was waiting to see if maybe they'd turn things around, but they didn't. Now you've really crossed the line. And, and, and why Gilead? Well, Syria was to the north, and they had important commerce and business with Egypt to the south. And Gilead was a city in uh, one of the uh, uh, part of the nation of Israel, one of the tribes, I think it was the tribe of Gad, that you had to go through in order to get to Egypt. And the, the Syrians didn't like the fact that they didn't control that entire thoroughfare. And so they were constantly warring with Israel to get control of Gilead, so they had control of that entire lane of commerce. And so that's why that's um, mentioned there. And Hazael and Ben-Hadad were kings of Syria during the 8th century, so that's a reference to the nation of Syria. And his judgment is against the house, their houses. Literally, that word means their palaces. And, and the city's gate bar, that, here's what he's saying. So the palace represents, the palace of the king represents wealth. The city's gate bar represents military strength. And here's what Amos is saying. You can have all the wealth and all the money in the world, and you can have all the military might in the world. It's not enough to stop God. You can't stop God with those things. That's what he's saying. It's a poetic way of saying this. God can kick your butt no matter what you throw at him. No amount of money or might can stop him. And that city, Kerr, in verse 5, he's going to send them into exile in Kerr. Interestingly enough, the Syrian people had originally come from Kerr, which was northeast of where they were living now. He was actually going to push the, the Syrians back into their... He's going to send them into exile in their original home. I love that irony. I love the irony of Scripture, and that's, there's irony there, Okay? Verses 6 through 8 is Gaza. This is uh, the Philistines. And of course God is going to judge the Philistines, right? They're sitting there going, yes, please, thank you. I've been waiting hundreds of years for this. And the Philistines were particularly good at taking whole peoples into captivity, often with help from Edom. That's why that reference is in there. And so God calls out judgments specifically on four of the five major cities of Philistia. There are five major cities in Philistia. It's interesting that he leaves out Gath, but he does. Not sure why, but he does. Tyre represents Phoenicia. This is north of Philistia, and Tyre is a major port on the Mediterranean Sea, 
that controlled virtually all of the commerce coming and going through the Mediterranean Sea. So that was where Tyre's strength came from. The problem is, is that the Phoenicians were just as genocidal and as ruthless as the Philistines. A lot of people don't realize that from history, but they were. It's just that they weren't, their, their anger and their antipathy was not directed as the, at the Israelites as often as the Philistines were, so we hear more about the Philistines in the Bible. But they were just as nasty as the Philistines. And in fact, it references this covenant of the brotherhood, and here's why they weren't uh, um, as aggressive towards Israel. During Solomon's reign, 200 years earlier, he had negotiated a deal with the king of Tyre, the king of Phoenicia, to say, we're going to work together and be friends. In other words, he had a truce. He had a treaty with Philistia. The problem is, is that they weren't honoring it anymore. At this point in history, in the mid-8th century, they weren't honoring that anymore. So if you think contracts and promises aren't important to God, there's some indication that they are. Then you move on to Edom. Edom, that's Jacob's brother. Jacob is Israel. Jacob had his name changed to Israel. Um, it's Esau. So you can see they're starting to, it's like they're starting to circle Israel. They're starting to get closer, and this is the first of the cousin nations. Here's Edom's sin. Edom's sin was perpetual anger and constantly seeing themselves as a victim. That was their sin. Perpetual anger and always seeing themselves as a victim. Anybody on social media? It seems like a haven for angry people who see themselves as victims. Guess what? God's going to judge that. And I've been angrily talking about that on Twitter. No, I'm kidding. Okay. We have that problem today as well. God's going to set fire, and he mentions two of the cities of Edom. Then you get to Ammon in verses 13 through 15. They're descendants of Lot, so another, another cousin nation. And their sin is that they constantly are trying to expand their borders into the lands of the tribes of Gad and Reuben, which were part of the northern uh, kingdom. They were part of Israel. And they would do anything to extend, the, extend those borders, including kill pregnant women and children. And you see that reference in the text there. So, again, crimes against humanity, and God looks at that and says, that's a problem. He's going to send fire on Ammon, but he also mentions for Ammon, Ammon's the only one that gets this, the whirlwind. The, the ancient Hebrew word for whirlwind literally means that I'm going to judge you also through nature. So through things like earthquakes and hurricanes and tornadoes and pestilence and things like that. Then you get to chapter 2, Moab, verses 1 through 3, that's another cousin of Lot. Uh, I mean, descendant of Lot, so another cousin of Israel. Uh, Moab's sin, here you go, this is really interesting. Moab's sin was against neither Israel nor Judah, but was always against Edom. This reminds us that God's judgment is universal against all sin, not just against the sin of his people. We need to remember that. And then you get to Judah. Uh-oh, Judah. Some of the Israelites might have been thinking in the back of their mind, you know, if he's willing to judge the, uh, the Judeans, maybe we're in trouble. Because it feels like we're getting encircled here. Okay? And especially because the judgment against Judah is not crimes against humanity, but rather they're turning their back on God's law and his word and his statutes. And we, we struggle with that today too. Christians struggle with that. 
Um, the world has outgrown many of God's principles. Have you noticed that? Well, at least have you heard that? The world has outgrown some of this God stuff. Um, I will confess to you, I like the show Blue Bloods, okay? And every time I meet a police officer, I recommend that he watch it so he understands what the reality of police work is, because it's a, anyway. And I meet a lawyer and I tell them to watch Suits, because that's real too. Anyway, um, I, I've only watched through the first five seasons of Blue Bloods. I, I haven't seen any seasons past that, and I know there's some issues with seasons past that, but there were some issues earlier on too. There was one season, or one episode, where this happened. Um, uh, the, the episode was about same-sex marriage. And the um, priest at Frank Reagan, you know, Thomas Magnum, Magnum P.I., the priest at his, um, that's Tom Selleck. I'm, there's a young person looking at me like she has no idea. Who's Thomas Magnum? It's, it's Tom Selleck. Anyway, he, Magnum P.I., I'm sorry. We'll explain later. Um, anyway, um, the, his priest was saying, hey, listen, Frank, we got a problem with this same-sex marriage thing. And, and Frank Reagan, is, of course, says, I, I think the church is out of step with the world today on that. Okay, well, that's how you do it. It's like, well, you know, the church is wrong on that now. The, the Bible is wrong on that now. We do this all the time. I hear this, I, I, it, uh, it's hard because, I, you know, you can't argue anybody into the kingdom, but I get this, it's no longer necessary to take the Bible seriously on issues of sexuality and government. It's no longer necessary to take the Bible serious on issues of sexuality and government. It's way behind the times. I love Jesus, but the Bible is dated. Okay. You know, it's the old Luther quote, Martin Luther um, uh, God made man in his image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. We're now making God in our image. Okay? Well, God judges this. And, and here's the thing I want you to understand. This is not just the sign of our times. This, this, this was happening in 750 B.C. too. I imagine there were people running around Israel in 750 B.C. going, for crying out loud, it's 750 B.C. Haven't we outgrown this stuff? Saying the same thing that we say today. Because that's the human condition. And, and, and then furthermore, in verse 4, it makes the reference to the lies of Judah. That's a reference to the fact that they're worshiping false gods now. And then the irony in verse 5, God is going to send fire against Jerusalem. This is how serious he is about justice and sin. And so now we get to what you might call the main event. And, it, and it's the last 15 minutes of what we're going to look at tonight. It's the judgment against Israel, the northern kingdom. And it goes on for way longer than the others. But up until now, Israel probably is loving this. They're, they're going, okay, we'll give you a listen, Amos. But now they're going to stop listening to him. Okay? Okay. Uh, and it served to affirm, so far, their worldview and eschatology that the day of the Lord would be a bright day of joy for them and dark for everybody else. And Amos is about to tell them, no, it's not. Um, and it is really fascinating that the judgment against the other nations is really short, and then this one just goes on for literally chapters. But, <coughs> excuse me, look at the map here, just to give you an idea. So, um, there's Damascus, so there's Syria, 
It's st the judgment starts there. Then it goes down here to Philistia, Philistines. And so you can see there's Gath and Gaza. They don't have the other three major cities on there. Then it jumps over Israel and goes up to Phoenicia. So if you're thinking about a map, you see that this judgment is just like, you know, it's like a sharpshooter shooting all around you, and then that last shot is coming right for you, you know. Um, then you move to um, uh, Aram, which is essentially Edom, then Ammon, uh, the Moabites, and then you get to Judah, and the judgment on Jerusalem. You see how it's just, he's just circling. And then you go to Israel. Keeps getting closer and closer. And so look at verses 6 through 16 of chapter 2. Thus says the Lord, for the three transgressions of Israel, what? And for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl. They're having sex with the same girl so that my holy name is profane. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge, and in the house of their God they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedars, and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. Also, it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it indeed not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the... Uh, swift and the strong shall not retain the, his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the, the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life. And he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. So verses 6 through 8 are the crimes against the Mosaic law. Verse 6 you sell the righteous for silver and the poor for sandals. It refers to the judges in Israel pairing up with the wealthy in Israel to take bribes so that people bringing legal actions, it's, their, their legal actions are decided before it ever gets to court. And the rich always win because they have the money to bribe. So they know they're going to win. In other words, this is systematic oppression of the poor. And the, they're people that are already poor. The poor don't have a fighting chance at all. And they're willing to sell their kin into slavery for something as trivial as a pair of shoes. It's not enough that the poor are already low. The Israelites are now pushing their heads into the ground. It's total humiliation. So they're laying on the ground, and, they, and the wealthy Israelites and judges just come by and push their heads into the ground. That's the imagery that God is trying to give us there. And those who are afflicted, instead of a helping hand up, to those who are, who are in need, whether it's financial or physically, they pound them further into the depths of despair. And you look at the second half of verse 7, there are two things there. Number one, all men in Israel were willing to engage in the fertility cult 
of the Canaanite religion, which means they were sleeping with temple prostitutes as a way of worshiping the Canaanite gods. That's not exactly what's written in the Mosaic law. And not only that, but you have father and son having sex with the same girl. Absolute degradation. And then verse 8, this idea of garments taken in pledge or being slept on on the altar. The Mosaic law said that if you took a garment as collateral for loan, at the end of the day you were supposed to give the garment back to the person even though they had your money so that they had something to sleep in. What was happening was they were taking the garments in a pledge for a loan. They weren't giving them back. In fact, they were laying them down on the Canaanite altars and sleeping on those garments at the Canaanite altars. It's just blasphemy. And Amos is calling them out uh, on this. And the wine that they were drinking was illegally obtained through these bribed fines that the judges were imposing. So they would, they would win a case um, because of the bribe. They would fine the poor whatever assets they had. Sometimes that was wine. They would then take the wine and then they'd party with the wine, the judges and the people who won the case. And then verses 9 through 12 are God reminding them of who he is. I paved the way for you out of the promised land. Without me, you wouldn't have made it. And I, and I freed you from the slavery that you had in Egypt, yet you disregard my statutes, you disregard my word, you disregard my covenant, and the prophets and the Nazarites, you refuse to listen to the revelation of the prophets. Every single prophet ran into this problem. The people wouldn't listen to the prophets, and not only do you not listen, but you command them to be quiet. You don't even let them speak. They threw Jeremiah into a well for crying out loud. We're sick of hearing you. We're going to throw you in a well. And, and then they reject the, the example of the Nazarites. The Nazarites took a vow to not cut their hair and never drink um, alcohol, wine. And so what they do is they come along and they force the Nazarites to drink wine. They want the Nazarites to break their vows so that they can feel better about their own sin. Do you see that? You ever see that in our culture today? You know, Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. He says, not only are you giving, uh, um, uh, not only are you engaging in the same sin as people who are pagans, but you're encouraging other people to start engaging in it as well. That's exactly what we do. In order to feel better about our own sin, we're trying to get everybody else to go along with us. Paul calls that out in us in Romans chapter 1, verse 32. And then verse 13, God says, As a cart of produce presses down the dirt on a path and hardens it, so I will press you down. Wow. That's ah, some rough stuff there. And then verses 14 through 16 are very simple. No one can be saved from this judgment. No one can save themselves from this judgment. There's no salvation or deliverance in self. Isn't this the message of the gospel, though? You're not fast enough. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not secure enough. You're not mighty enough. You will succumb to the ultimate judgment of God. That's what he's saying there. You're not, you're not going to be able to run away fast enough. You're going to get on your horse, and it's not going to do you any good. You may be able to bench press 500 pounds, but it's, it's not going to help you when it comes to how I'm going to hold you up for judgment. 
There's no place to hide, but there is one thing you can do, and that is repent. You can repent. It's a call to repentance. So as we close, I want you to think about something. Um, Verses 13 through 16 of chapter 2, this idea that nobody can save themselves, and God constantly saying, I'm not going to withhold punishment. You can't save yourselves, and I'm not going to withhold punishment. Doesn't that sound hopeless? You can't save yourself. I'm not going to withhold punishment. That sounds hopeless to me. Here's the problem that we have. <clears throat> the problem that we have is that sin has to be paid for somehow. It has to be. One way or the other, sin's going to get paid for. It's going to be paid for by us, or it can be paid for a different way. Here you go. If you get nothing else out of tonight, get this. Grace does not mean that sin isn't paid for. Sometimes we forget that. Grace does not mean that sin isn't paid for. It means that we receive the benefit of somebody else paying for that sin through no merit or worthiness of our own. And here you go. This is that payment for sin. This is John chapter 19. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, Latin, and in Greek. So here's the significance of that. Jesus was crucified at 24th Street and Camelback. Why? Because everybody needs to see that this is what happens to people who claim to be the king of the Jews. This is what happens if you, do, if you commit this crime, and they put it up there in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek to make sure everybody got the message. Don't do what he did. You'll end up like him. They're not, they're not going to crucify their criminals in a closet. They're going to crucify them where everybody will see them. So the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, don't write the king of the Jews, but rather... This man said that I'm the king of the Jews. And Pilate's like, you're really going to split that hair? I've written what I've written. Just get over it. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, but let's let's cast lots to see whose it will be. And this is to fulfill the scripture which says, they divided my garments among them and for my clothing they cast lots, which is Psalm what? Anybody? 22. Psalm 22. It's a messianic psalm. So the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his sister and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When they saw When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John, the writer of this gospel, standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to John, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took uh, took her into his own home. So he went and took care of Jesus' mother, John did. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst A jar of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine 
on a hyssop branch, something to be able to get it up to, to, his, to his mouth, and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. That's the key point of that entire passage. Jesus saying, it is finished. The sin has been paid for. And the grace is the fact that I did what you can do in hell for eternity, but you can't do for yourself in order to get out of hell. I did that for you. And the grace is receiving that gift that he did for us through no merit or worthiness of ourselves. That's the gift. And that's what God is saying in the last part of Amos chapter 2. He's saying, you can't save yourself. The only way you can save yourself is through me. You need to repent. You need to come back to me. And that's Amos's message. Lots and lots of judgment over and over and over again. But he's using those words to say, you got to come back. You got to come back. So next week, we'll look at chapters 3 and 4. Uh, the third week will be chapters 5 and 6. This is for those of you that like to read and study ahead. And the last week will be chapters 7, 8, and 9. So we're going to descend before we ascend, okay? That's what's going to happen. But it's really interesting. If you want to understand, have a better understanding of the language, context, and history of the Old Testament, this is a great series because it gets into all of that for us. Okay? Yes? Well, <clears throat> they could repent and begin to stop their, their um, immoral practices, but if you're talking about the different exiles, historically, um, what happened when Assyria finally came in and sacked Jerusalem, I'm, I'm sorry, Israel, the northern kingdom, in 722, um, they massacred most of the people, and those that they did not kill, they made them intermingle with their own people and with other people. In other words, they did what was abominable to God. They had them intermarry. And, and that's why later on, 700 years later, that's why the Jews couldn't stand the, Samari the, the Samaritans because they were the descendants of that intermingling from the, the judgment of, of Assyria in 722. And Assyria was getting ready to go into Judah at that time, but God prevented it. And they ended up going around uh, Israel and going to the west and to the south. And then several years later, the Babylonians got stronger than the Assyrians, and they're the ones that came in and eventually sacked Jerusalem and Judah. And they, the Babylonians, had a different way of dealing with conquered people. They took about 70,000 of the Jews from Judah and mostly from Jerusalem. They just took them as a people group back to Babylon, 700 miles to the east, plopped them down there and said, okay, you're going to live here now, but you don't have to intermarry. And Jeremiah and Lamentations and Ezekiel and Daniel all deal with, with um, that part of the history. And then eventually what happened is the Babylonians lost to the Persians, and the Persians came in and said, we'll release you. You can go back to Jerusalem and you can rebuild your nation. And some of the Jews went back and did that. Others, other of the Jews stayed in Babylon because they'd made a life there. And some, still others of the Jews, they went further east and started living in Persia. That's where we get the story of, for instance, ne Nehemiah and Esther. Because that was all done there. So...
you got to you got to repent. <clears throat> well, they would go to the temple and they would repent and they would they would renounce all of the social injustices that they were practicing. Now think about that. That was going to that was going to cause an uproar in their entire culture and system. You have one person that's going to go back and say, okay, I'm not going to bribe judges anymore, and we're not going to oppress the poor anymore. And they're all going to gang up on that person. It's going to be very hard to do. So it's not an easy thing to do, but essentially what it, what it is, it's a call to live out the faith that you claim that you have. And, and really, they didn't even claim they had that. They were worshiping, and we'll see later on in Amos that they were worshiping in different cities. And they were worshiping at these Canaanite um, temples of false gods. But essentially what they have to do is they have to renounce what they were doing and, and start to live as God's people, as God has called them to, according to the Mosaic Law. According to the justice in the Mosaic Law, they weren't doing that. From time to time, sure. Sure, but they were also doing all kinds of others. They were sleeping with temple prostitutes, too. So kill a goat have sex. That was kind of their, their deal, you know? So I guess they were trying to cover all their bases. All right, let's pray, and we'll be back here. Uh, well, we'll be here Sunday, but we'll be back here also Wednesday night. Also remember, thir next week, Thursday night, a week from tomorrow night, is the Gospel and the Aging event with um, uh, Schrader. Is it Aging and the Gospel? I don't want to get those back mixed up. Anyway, whatever. All right. Uh, I think we're going to record that, yeah. Uh, we haven't worked that out yet, but I believe we are. Uh, Lord God, we thank you for um, your grace and your mercy, and we also thank you that at times we have to hear uh, about your judgment, as challenging as that might be. Uh, but I pray that in the midst of this, we would hear Amos' call to repentance, that, that uh, we would hear uh, the hypocrisy that we also practice and, and a call to uh, come back to you, uh, come boldly, to your throne of grace, as the author of Hebrews says, uh, and receive your grace and, and, and be restored to you. God, we thank you for your word and its truth and how uh, it's living and breathing and is, and is always applicable to, to our situation, even today. We thank you for that, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great evening, everybody.